All right. Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. We're starting Malachi today, right? This is kind of fun. I'm kind of excited about it. It's our last book in the Old Testament. If we're, you know, flipping through and kind of looking at these, um, I have really enjoyed preaching through the minor prophets in the last, I don't know how long it's Chris and I have been doing it. Um, but but I want you to think about this thing. One of the things that Chris and I have really been praying about and really been talking about and really been focusing on is being people of the word, right? Like that's the word of God and being that. And as Chris and I preached through this last book in our sermon series through, through the minor prophets, I want to encourage you to read the book of Malachi daily as we preach through it. Now that sounds weird. You're going to ask me, preacher, to, to read an entire book of scripture every day. Yes, I am. Because here's why. Back in November 2016, a guy named Travis Agnew published this list of how long it takes to actually read through each book of Scripture. To read all four chapters of Malachi should take the average American reader about 11 minutes. You can read the entire book of Malachi in about 11 minutes. Now, if you cheat, kind of the way I do sometimes, you get out your little audio Bible app on your phone, right? And you plug it in and you listen to it, because that's kind of what I do a lot. Um, I will say it. I appreciate my audio Bible helping me get through my couple of Old Testament seminary classes because you got a nine-hour drive and I got to read all of the all of Joshua Judges all of these things and I got to do it somehow and I listen to a lot of it. You can listen to the entire book of Malachi on your on your whatever your audio format is you like to probably while you're in the shower and by the time you're done it'll be done. Right? You've got the time to do it. So I would encourage you to do that. Because our goal here at Calvary Heights is to proclaim and share the Word of God with people. That's what we want to do. Right? And I want to help you find as many ways as you can to get the Word of God into your life. I want you to have the Word of God in you as much as possible. I want you to know God's Word so that you never have to take somebody else's Word for it. Don't be that person. I want you to hide the word of, your, of the Lord into your heart so that you may not sin against God. That's what our goal should be. So I'm encouraging you to, to read through the book of Malachi every day as we kind of preach through it. Um, hear it, listen to it. However, just get the word in there. It's going to be a great book as we study into this. Uh, I'm really encouraged about it. Now, with all of that being said, let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. And let's look at Malachi chapter 1, verses just 1 through 5 today. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and let his heritage and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, 
and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much. We thank you for just your word. We thank you for this time we have to, to hear it. We thank you for phrases in your word, like Malachi 1-2 that says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Father, as we look into your sovereign love today, I pray that you would, you would just speak to our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you would, you would gear us up so that we may want more of your word, more of your sovereign love, that we would want to, to live it out in a manner that, that lets people know that there's nothing else we know except for you. Father, I pray that as we, we dive into this, this small little chunk that you'd put me aside and that it be, be you that is speaking to our hearts through your word today. You would challenge us. You would convict us. You would, you would draw us close to you. And it's in Jesus' precious and heavenly name I pray. Amen. All right, so we dive into Malachi here. And it kind of opens us up. And it's going to give us a little bit of some questions. Who is Malachi? When was this oracle recorded, right? If we look at Malachi 1.1 compared to like Zechariah 1.1 when we were talking about it, or when we looked at Zephaniah, when we looked at some of these others, we see there's, there's this drastic difference. When we looked at Zephaniah 1.1, it said, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. We see clearly who Zephaniah is as we were studying through him and looking at that. We're, we're given a very clear time frame of when it was written. Malachi 1.1 doesn't do any of that. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It tells us something very important here, though. It tells us this is the word of the Lord. We need to know that. That is good. It also gives us Malachi's name, and Malachi is this beautiful name. It means my messenger or messenger of the Lord. Right? But that's, what we, that's about all that we do know. It's kind of commonly held that Malachi is a prophet uh, and that he's a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, whom we've already studied as a group. And so that his prophecies, as he's coming, come about 80 years or so after Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the people while they were rebuilding the temple. That it's in this kind of post-exile world that Malachi is, is preaching and, and been giving this oracle. The people here that Malachi is preaching to, the, the immediate hearers of the word, they're not necessarily in blatant idolatry, but they're also not in wholehearted, enthusiastic worship. They're kind of um, going through the motions, showing up on, on Sabbaths, bringing their doves, bringing their sheep, just doing what they're supposed to do. But there's no real enthusiasm. There's no real desire to, to really do this for the Lord. It's just, this is what we do. It's Friday night, Saturday morning, we go to temple. And, and that's not what God's looking for. What God is seeing among the people is they've made a lot of small compromises in their faith. And those small compromises in their faith have started not just to compromise their faith, but they started to dilute out their practices. And God brings in Malachi, his messenger. 
as a wake-up call to renew in them a, a, a renewance in the covenant, get fervent again, be faithful again, to really have enthusiasm and, and to have a wholeheartedness in their worship. And as Malachi gives out his oracle, the word that he has from the Lord, it comes to us in, in six different disputes or disputations, some will say. These arguments that people have been raising up, these, these disputes that people have with God. They, they're, they're, well, God, you say this, but kind of situation. And God in his sovereign love and God in his sovereign patience, he hears their arguments. But I love what he does with his arguments. He doesn't just hear their arguments. He then refutes their arguments. But he does so in, an, in a patience and in love. He hears them and he refutes them. And the very first dispute we see starts off right here in verses 2 through 5. The people have been asking, does God really make a distinction between the good and the arrogantly wicked? Does God really love us, the Jews, his chosen people, more than he loves the people around us? Does God really love those who seek out to do good more than those who seek out to do evil? Because when they look around the world, it looks like just God is just being God and he's kind of left things on his own and he's ignoring things. Right? We see that. We feel that sometimes. Like, how come that guy who is a schmuck and a jerk is able to get this, 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 and this and I got to go call the insurance agent about a new roof on my house, right? How does that happen? How come I still got four ricks of firewood in my backyard that I don't have a wood stove for because the tree fell down, right? All these, where's that love, God? It's kind of the moment they're having here. And God's hearing it out patiently and lovingly, right? The people here are living in this post-exile Judah, but they're, they're still under the rule of a foreign oppressor. We forget sometimes that the Jewish people in this time are still subjugated people, right? They feel this deeply, and they're really genuinely questioning God's love for them. They see all the political, economic, and spiritual destitution all around them. They see their oppressors and their persecutors doing well around them. And they still feel like they're suffering. How can God love his people, yet seemingly to them, show favor to his people's enemies? That's the question the people have. And I love how God answers it. And he answers it so directly. I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. That, that word for love here is so important. Right? Uh, this, the same response from God as God is saying that could also be translated, I have always loved you. So this is love, if, if you're into the grammar part of it, this is, this is love in the perfect tense, if we're talking about verb tenses. Right? This is a love that existed before, and it's a love that will continue to exist after. 
This is a love that has a completed action, but it has continued ramifications. It has happened, it is happening, it will continue to happen. That's how this verb tense works with this word love. But the people still questions God's love. Y'all, if you don't read the Old Testament and sometimes look at Israel like whiny teenagers, you're not seeing how patient our God really is. (laughs) Because God says back to them, He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, you Israel, you say, how have you loved us? And to answer that question, God takes the people all the way back to Genesis chapter 27. He's really taking us further back then. He's taking us really to the covenant with Abraham and reminding them of that. But he's going to go to, to Genesis 27 when Isaac, who is Abraham's son, the one that was promised um, to God or to Abraham, Isaac and Sarai, uh, or Abraham and Sarai, he's promised. He has his two sons now, Jacob and Esau. And Isaac's getting old. He's going blind. He can't see. And there's this whole who is going to get the blessing of the firstborn moment in Genesis chapter 27. And Isaac winds up blessing Jacob rather than the firstborn son, Esau. Now, why does that sound important to us when God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated, or I have hated. Why is that important? Well, it's important for us to remember that because the people of Israel worship the God of whom? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They do not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 27 and and this story about Jacob and Esau, God reminds the people that his love is elective. His love is elective. And not only is it elective, it's unconditional. This isn't some affection. This isn't like God has a crush on Israel. God crushes Israel because of his love. This love is a choice. God has specifically chosen Israel and these people in these moments because of his great love. Esau and Jacob were brothers, but God in his sovereign love chose Jacob to favor. And these Israelites that are here complaining in Malachi about God not really loving them are directly descended from Jacob. They are from his people. And the weird thing is, is the Edomites, all the people that are around them, right? These are the people who are descended from Esau. But what they're, they're missing something here. That when God chose Jacob, when God said, Jacob, I love, and I am, I'm choosing him, and I'm making him the firstborn, I'm giving him the inheritance, God granted Jacob the privilege of being part of the redemptive history as being in the line of the Messiah to come, the one who would save everyone. 
And Esau was rejected for that purpose. And the people have missed this. Now, and it's going to look like a really weird argument to the people. This is going to be one of those moments where they're going to be like, are you sure this is how you want to say this, Malachi? Right? God choosing Jacob and Israel instead of choosing Esau or Edom. Like, it probably feels a little hollow right now. Right? It might look like Malachi is making a blunder here by relaying this message. We've got to remember that these are folks that are coming back from the exile. They have just spent 70 years, a generation plus, away from their home country. A generation plus where they were not allowed to worship the one true God. A generation plus in which the word of the Lord was lost to many of them. They were sacked. The temple destroyed. Jerusalem laid in ruins. And then not only were they sacked and destroyed, they were then carried away. Their best and their brightest became eunuchs under the Babylonian Empire. They tried, there was, for lack of a better way to say it, wartime in this was genocide. You eliminated those who could continue on the propitiation, and, and, or not the, the, the propagation of, of the next generation. And, and they tried to do that, but they were unsuccessful because God loved Israel. But they were in Babylon for those 70 years. But the thing is, is Edom, the descendants of Esau, all remained intact. And not only did Edom remain intact, what we have read through Nehemiah and what we read through Ezra and what we read through Haggai and some of these other Old Testament prophets as we've been studying through them is that the Edomites profited off Israel's loss. They sought out gain. And this has got to be a sting. You're telling me you love us, but we went to Babylon for 70 years and you hate Edom, but they profited from our 70 years of exile. And the answer is yes. God loves Israel more even though that's the situation. See, Malachi brings up Jeremiah 9.11 before the people. And in Jeremiah 9.11 it says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Now this particular prophecy that Malachi brings up happened about 200 years before Malachi's oracle. But Malachi is applying it in a different manner now. He's now applying it to Edom, to the people of Esau. See, Malachi shows that, that no one here is able to hide from God's sovereign judgment. Judah had judgment coming upon them for their sin against God. They could not hide from that. They were God's chosen people, but they were not unable to escape God's judgment. If God's chosen people cannot escape God's judgment... Those that he has hated certainly will not escape God's coming judgment. And then Malachi takes Edom's judgment just a little bit further. As you're continuing to look and, and see what it says there in chapter or in verse 4. They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Judah was punished. And the punishment of the exile was for purification and restoration. After Judah's time of punishment, Judah was restored. 
and they were restored graciously by God. That restoration of Judah reflects God's love for his people. Edom's judgment, however, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever? Edom's judgment is permanent. Edom's judgment is irreversible. What we see in history is how that fulfilled and how that played out. The people of Edom were were attacked numerous times, so much so that they actually stopped settling in cities, and they became semi-nomadic. They became wanderers. Um, By the time we get to Jesus in Rome, they were Many of them were known as the Idumeniums, right? I-D-U-M-E-A-N. I can never pronounce that quite right. It's a lot of extra vowels in places I can't get said. But that's what they became. They became wanderers, nomadic people. They lost their national identity. In the time period from now to the time period of Jesus, there was no longer an Edom. From, from when Malachi is giving this oracle to when Jesus comes, there's no longer Edom. There are no longer Edomites. The people are gone. Their national identity is ceased. And God says in verse 5, you sh- Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Israel has been chastened. They've been punished. They've had their time of restoration, right? They've been brought low so that God may be seen as sovereign. God is universally sovereign. God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign even over those who don't acknowledge his sovereignty. He is the maker of all things, and he is sovereign over all things. And we see within this short passage of Malachi how God declares and how God demonstrates his sovereign love for his people. And I love this. In these five verses, we see these things. We see that that God demonstrates his sovereign love by his declaration of love for his people. I love verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. In verse 2, the holy God, the creator of the universe, says to his people, I have loved you. The whole reason Israel is chosen is because of God's love. There's no other reason. Israel was one of the smallest nations. They had been enslaved in Egypt. There's nothing out there. He just, I loved you. I chose you. You're, you're mine, and I, and I want it. It, it, is, it is God's good pleasure that he should continue to care for Israel. He redeemed their ancestors from Egypt. He's brought them out of Babylon, Babylonian captivity. He desires a relationship with his people. And all of that, in that declaration, I have loved you, demonstrates a steadfast love for all of them and how much he wants them. He demonstrates 
that love that way. God also demonstrates his love by his election of Israel, right? God gives a very clear declaration of love. I have always loved you. But again, talk about Israel's like this moody kid who doesn't want to believe the truth. And we've seen that. We, we, can, we can tell someone we love them, but in that moment of hurt, that moment of struggle, they don't believe it. And they want to know how we love them. God says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, now I, want us to, I want to caution us just a little bit here. Right? When we read the words love and hate, I want us to read them understanding the covenant of Abraham. Right? This isn't, this isn't an emotional love. This isn't an emotional hate. This is a, yet I have chosen Jacob, and yet Esau I have not chosen kind of love, kind of hate concept. Right? God chose Jacob to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He didn't choose Esau. There could have only been one of those brothers to do that job anyway. It was just which one does God choose to do that job? I love that Paul in Romans chapter 9 addresses this. As, as we read through Scripture, we see these connections. It's amazing. But, but all of this, and Paul is talking about this in Romans 9, all of this choosing was done even before Jacob and Esau were even born. And as Paul's reading, reassuring the readers of the Romans letter that God sent his saving love on Jacob, right? He's telling us that. But he's also reminding us that God remains just in not choosing everyone. God's election is not influenced by anything people do. God chose Abraham out of all the people of the earth just because God chose Abraham. I don't know why God chose Abraham. God knows why God chose Abraham. He's God. I'm not. It's his decision. I'm good with that. That's all I can do. God chose Abraham out of all of the other people on the earth. God promised Abraham, you will have a son. Abraham got a little nervous about that, right? There's Isaac, the one born to Sarah, Ishmael. Oops. God now has choice. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac has sons, Jacob and Esau. God chooses Jacob instead of Esau. God makes all of these choices that we see of his own accord. Of his own accord. There's not any merit that anybody here has done to have been chosen. The salvation of anyone comes only through God's mercy on them. Nothing they do. And Malachi shows that God's election here is, is a way to comfort and reassure the people. That it's not based on some sort of performance task you have to do to earn God's love. God's love is not based on your performance. God's love is not based on your position within society. God's love is not based on the power you have within a community. God's love is based on God's prerogative. And the original audience of Malachi had done nothing to deserve God's love and grace. Yet they still have God's love and grace on them. I have loved you, says the Lord. 
And it's weird to think too, but God also demonstrates his love for the people through his rejection of Esau and Edom. Right? God rejected Edom because of their wickedness. Edom was just as wicked and as bad as all the surrounding countries around them. They had the same sins, issues that Judah had and Israel had. There's nothing here. But God rejects them because of their wickedness. And it's a direct response to their evil is that rejection. And it's weird to think because Israel and Edom, here they are, they're related countries. They're cousins, if you would. Right? They have a common tie to Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. They're all connected there. They have very similar consequences for their collective sins against God. We already see in Scripture several times their lands will be destroyed, left barren and cursed. But God in his rejection of Edom, of Esau, destined them for destruction. The tension between Israel and Edom was, was always kind of present in history. But it was one of those kind of quiet little things kind of like feuds Hatfields McCoy's kind of quiet just kind of only bubbles up every once in a while but it was always present in history remember I said that that by the time we get from Malachi to the time we get to Jesus the the folks of Edom had been spread out so far that they were really no longer a nation but they were a group of people known as uh, the Idumeans right That's kind of who they were known as in the Roman era. Herod the Great was an Idumean. He was an Idumean. He was a group of people. He was from that group of people that would have descended from Edom, from Esau. And so when he hears that announcement of the one, the one who was born king of the Jews... That had made him a little nervous. He, he, he was kind of play-acting as a king of the Jew, and he knew it. He knew that the one true Messiah, king of the Jews, Jesus, was chosen, and Herod knew he was not. He understood that biblical ramification. What we see here is that God's love for for Israel should not be in question. It is easy for the people to question God's love on them. And it's easy for us to fall into that same trap. Know that when God says, I have loved you, he has loved you. And he shows us that he loves us. He loves us by choosing. He loves us by selecting. He loves us in all these ways. That God will take it back and he will point us back into history to show his love for us and his love for the pe- his people. He restored the land of the people of Israel. He restored their prosperity. And Edom, Esau, whom he has hated, remained in perpetual ruin. But the ultimate way that we know that God loves us, that God demonstrates his love for his people, is through Jesus Christ. Christ is the pinnacle of God's sovereign love. Romans 5 8. I love how this just speaks truth to us but god shows his love for us that while we were still sinners christ died for us while we were still sinners christ died for us god initiates that love for us we weren't deserving of the love that he lavished on us 
at the time of the cross. That was nothing we had done to deserve that kind of love. But he so chose to love us that way, even while we were in rebellion against him. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is unconditional. Israel did nothing to earn God's love. And you and I have done nothing to earn God's love. He loves us because he sees fit to love us. Y'all, I wake up with me every morning. I don't know how she does it. And I certainly don't understand how God then sees fit to love me too. But he sees fit to love us. Even when we sin and we stray, he still sees fit to run to us in love. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us the parable of the prodigal son. And we're all really familiar with this story for the most part, right? We, we have this father, and he's got a wayward son. And the, and the wayward son not just leaves the father, but he betrays the father. But what do we see happening in the story? The father waits at the gates, looking for his son. This, this betrayed father of a wayward son, when he sees his son coming from a long way off, runs to embrace his son when he returns. And it's really funny to think about it because when the, when the son says, I want my inheritance now, dad, so I can go out and live the way I want to live, he's basically telling his dad, hurry up and die. You're more valuable to me as a dead man with my inheritance than you are to me alive. And then the son squanders everything that the father had given him. And I remember that speech, the son's practicing, maybe I can ask dad to be a a hired hand on the farm again. Man, I don't even deserve to be. A, he's practicing up. How do, I, how do I say this to dad? And he comes back groveling with nothing to offer his dad. But the father greets him with an embrace of love. The father had always loved him. And all he wanted was to see that love reciprocated. This is what God wants from us. He has always loved us. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there is no sin that can make God love you less. He has always loved you. No one will ever love you like God loves you. And the only proper response to that love only proper response to that love is a complete surrender of your life to him. We're going to be preaching through Malachi, and we're going to be taking some time to be into it and then really looking deep. And as we preach through Malachi, we are going to see the people of God being called out for half-hearted love toward the Lord. Today, during our time, our, our call of invitation, our, our call to action, I want you to spend some time today asking God to remove any half-heartedness 
that you may have toward love toward him. Any half-heartedness that you might have in worship toward him. Any half-heartedness in service unto him. So that you may be completely surrendered to him. And that when you hear, I have always loved you, says the Lord. You will not be coming back saying, but how have you loved us? You'll say, I know. And be reassured. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. We thank you that your love is sovereign. And that it is deep and it is wide and it is bigger than our, our understanding of grace. We thank you for declarations of love like this. We thank you for choosing us in that love. And we thank you that you loved us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray that as we continue to go through the book of Malachi, as you continue to to speak to us through your word, that you would challenge us, convict us, change us so that we are not a half-hearted people. And that we do not come questioning as Israel did, how have you loved us? Let us be bold in knowing exactly how you have loved us so that we may proclaim that love to others so they may come to know Christ as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray.